Welcome to this Columbia University Comunitas Public Management Podcast. Today we'll be featuring a master class by Columbia University Professor Elliot Sklar on land use regulation as negotiation. Dr. Sklar is the director of the Center for Sustainable Urban Development at Columbia's Earth Institute and the author of the award-winning book, You Don't Always Get What You Pay For, The Economics of Privatization. Dr. Sklar will be talking today about New York City zoning regulations and the centuries-long negotiations that surround them. Here at Columbia, I've been, uh, I'm on the fa- I've been on the faculty of SEPA. Uh, I've been on the faculty of the Graduate School of Architecture, um, Planning and Preservation, and on the Earth Institute faculty, which I, um, and, and I'm still at the Earth Institute, where I am the director of the Center for Sustainable Urban Development. It's a center that I founded about 12 years ago. And um, uh, I'm still trying to find somebody else. Um, anyway, no, it, 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 it's, it's very, the work we do is very exciting. Uh, I, I actually uh, just returned from uh, 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 one of the global centers. I was just down in, in, in Santiago de Chile. I was down, uh, I did a, a, a session there, and, and we have a working relationship with uh, a, a center at the Catholic University called Cedeus, which is the Center for Sustainable Urban Development in Spanish. And uh, so our two centers are, have, have been working together for, for many years. Um, one of our, our big projects at my center now is actually over in Africa, in Nairobi, Kenya. We, we have been working on a project called Digital Matatus that my colleague uh, Jackie Klopp has been running. And what we've done is we've been able to link up the informal transport system with digital technology so people may not have clean drinking water, but they all have cell phones and we can now map and chart uh, and they can know when the next vans on their routes are coming and and we've, we've also it becomes a way to bring the informal into the formal so we've, we've been uh, we've been doing that um, I'm going to be taking you today down to see one of the, what build as the largest private development now in, uh, I think they talk about it in the world, the Hudson Yards development down on the west side of Manhattan. And um, it's, in, uh, it's located in community board number four. And I had, in the 1980s, I did urban planning consulting for, for them. Um, the, the, uh, prior to this, I was, um, in the early 2000s, I was the co-director of a UN Millennium uh, Task Force um, uh, called you know, Improving the Lives of Slum Dwellers. That was what, um, and um, in that capacity, I had a chance to travel to your wonderful country a few times. And um, one of my occasions, I, I met uh, President De Silva and, and um, Marta Sapolsi, who was then the mayor of Sao Paulo, when they were signing, when he was signing the first um, security of tenure documents for people living in, in the favela in Heliopolis. And uh, I, I uh, that was um, uh, it was very nice, and, and I I know I know President De Silva's having some hard times right now, and but I was thinking maybe if he wanted to get out of the country, we could use a president um, around here, um, <laughs> you know, if he's not too busy. Uh, anyway, um, uh, the the um, the quick conclusion of the work I did on the slums was the, the real was that. Essentially, if the world wanted to end urban slums, 
we could afford to do it. The, we, one of the things my task force did was try and cost out what it would cost. And the only way I can explain it, it would cost less than half of one invasion of Iraq. Just so it isn't a matter of the world uh, being able to deal with some of these problems. It's a matter of what the world, um, what we, we want to deal with, what our values are. And, and, um, and, it's, and that's, um, that was one of the most powerful um, things I learned. In addition to the, my, th that work, I, I spent uh, 30 years uh, working in a field called socially responsible investing. I was the chairman of one of the first um, portfolio management companies that just specialized in socially responsible investing. We started working after um, this, uh, there was all these boycotts of South Africa. And we started, we said, well, instead of divestment, why don't we talk about investment? What would you do positively? So uh, I was, uh, I, I, from the, that time on, I was, just, I was pleased to see uh, it's now, stand, socially responsible investing is now standard everywhere. But in those days, it was, um, we would, what we were doing was very risky. I also was a, a bank director of a, of a publicly traded bank in Massachusetts. We were the largest community lenders in the state. So I've done, um, I've, my, so my interests have always been in, in how you, in this financing, economics, and social issues. Um, I am an economist by training. But I'm not, um, I'm, I'm probably what you would call an institutional economist. That doesn't mean I belong in an institution. Um, it, what it means, uh, being an institutional economist, is that I, I look at, uh, you have to look at problems in their social context. You have to look at the institutions. And I hope to show you that today with zoning. And you have to look at history. You can't look at things in the moment. The moment only exists because of things that went before it. Unless you understand that dynamic, it's very hard to think about what comes next. And I hope to show you some of that today in our, in our case study. Um, I, uh, I wrote a book a few years ago on privatization. And it was called um, You Don't Always Get What You Pay For. And it won a couple of academic prizes. And, and I thought um, that it, it, I thought the issue was just policy. And you find out it's really more about ideology. So it, it, um, uh, it, it's, it's one of those um, things. OK, um, the, the, this, I said the subject matter, uh, the, the, the specific subject matter that we're dealing with is, is, is zoning. And um, uh, in, in general, uh, we'll define zoning a little bit more in, in, in one of the other slides. But in general, zoning, which sets the rules for land use, uh, um, is very often treated as a technical and legal matter. I know here in, at Columbia, in, in our master's program in planning, the zoning class is often taught by lawyers, or it's, it's, taught, you know, it's taught as a very technical subject, and, and um, things get lost in the technicalities. Um, it's also, uh, as I said, I'm a planner, but I'm an economist. Um, a lot of uh, economists treat zoning as a, as a regulatory block or fetter um, that stops um, us from using the market to solve problems. That's, there's, so there's, there's a second um, look at, at there's a second way in which re it has to do with the way regulation is, is often um, viewed in uh, in, 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 um, in, in policy circles. And there's a third way and they look at it. 
And that's the way we're going to look at it. And it's that um, it's really uh, it's a very generic regulatory form that it doesn't matter where you go in the world, cities have to grapple with, with regulating land use. And the reason they have to grapple with regulating land use is um, land, um, unlike most other economic goods, is in, is in inelastic supply. They don't make more of it. <laughs> you know, you've got what you've got. You can make it denser, um, but essentially, you've got to figure out how everybody who needs to have access to a place can have access. And zoning and regulation become one of the ways in which we end up doing that. And so, it's, it's, so when I look at zoning, uh, I look at it my, with my hat on as an institutional economist, as it's an ins it's a, zoning is an institution. Land use regulation is an institution. It takes very specific forms in different places at different times, but there's, but there's also a generic piece to that. So what I'm hoping to do in, in I'm going to tell you New York stories today, because that's what I know. I'm from New York. I, I, was, um, I was born on 155th Street, and I got here to 116th, and then uh, I didn't have enough car fare to go further. Um, so, uh, uh, so I can tell you New York stories, but I'm hoping that my New York stories um, uh, the, in, in, in the specificity of them, as we get later in, in the morning, we, we, and, and, and when we walk around and we talk, we can, we can get to some of the, the generic or general um, that would be of interest, things that you can take with you as we go on. So the first thing I, I would simply say, when we say institutions, I, I go to um, the economist Douglas North, and he says institutions are the rules of the game. In other words, um, they're the way in which uh, we work things out. So what we want to do when we look at zoning is look at, is understand it as the rules of the game and, and then understand um, what, how, how that, that happens. And um, so that's the, that's the approach that, that um, I, I want to take. And also, stop me whenever you have a question. Because um, I... I um, I, I don't, you know, I don't have all, essentially, um, for me, so this question of zoning is, um, is partly it's a question of, uh, you have to understand that it's administrative practice. Anywhere you go, there, there, there are rules. Um, uh, how is the existing or proposed change in regulations going to impact the city socially and physically? If you're a planner, um, these are questions that come up. There's these, how, how, is it, how will change work? How does it work? Um, and, and, and you look at the rules. And then um, institutional decision making is, uh, why are we considering this proposal? Why, why is this the change that we're considering making? We're going to look at the Hudson Yards case, which Hudson Yards, by the way, is now is billed as the largest privately planned development um, in the world, if you believe the developers. Um, and and uh, it, it is large, and it is massive, and it is right in the middle of New York City. So um, the question of why these changes, why, why they happen, those are the questions. Um, one of the problems with a lot of the way the subject of land use regulation is taught, and it has to do with, with, uh, um, with the way in which economists often define the problem as markets versus regulation, and, you know, and the notion is that anything that, that interferes with the market. So we often think of things in very static terms, uh, in, in regulatory terms. And what I want us to consider in looking at 
zoning, looking at regulation, looking at urban policy, is I want us to say, look at it dynamically. Look at um, what are the larger forces that are driving the urban economy? The, the global forces, there are local forces. And, 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 how, and, how, and then how does zoning work and, and come out of that? So I think that um, in doing that, we'll, get, we'll learn something about um, uh, kind of ways in which we do, we do urban policy. Um, let's start. Now, if you go to New York City Department of City Planning and you go to their um, zoning handbook, they will tell you that, quote, zoning determines the size and use of buildings, where they are located, and in large measure, the density of the city's diverse neighborhoods. That's a quote from the, the 2011 edition of the book. It's page one. It was written by the chair. Um, but the question that I would then ask, but what determines zoning? Okay, Zoning determines the city, but what determines zoning? And who are the people that, comp that comprise the density? That's a very important question, because um, cities at their best uh, bring together people from all walks of life. And cities that work well um, are cities that, 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 that can make that, that make that work. So what, what um, uh, uh, essentially uh, I'm arguing is that if you understand these social and economic drivers, um, and, and, the, and the conditions of them, you're, 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 you have a chance of being an optimist, of being optimistic about um, dealing with, with the, to me, the problem, the issues that I think are most pressing, social equity, environmental sustainability. Um, if you ask me what's tearing the world apart today, it's those two things. And um, of course, they take many forms, but they, but they play out in cities. And, and just let me emphasize that again. By the middle of this century, by 2050, something like um, two-thirds to three-quarters of the whole population of the world are going to be living in, urban, in places that are defined as urban places. Uh, I'm not going to get into how urban is defined because uh, the uh, uh, UN Habitat asks every country to do its own definition. But leaving aside the, 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 the finest of the nuance, um, the issue, the issue is, the issue is about density and access. I'm getting used to this. <laughs> okay. Um, now, th th I, I said a few minutes ago that um, what we do has to be um, sort of historically, and so. Um, you have to understand zoning. It wasn't that somebody woke up one day and said, "Let's have rules." Um, there were something was happening to cities as cities became industrial centers, and people began to pour into them. Uh, the the density and the ease of and ease of access um, became became challenges. And um, it, if you study urban planning with me, and you ask me what a city is. I would say a city is a solution to a transportation problem. That is to say, the reason you have cities is not to travel. Um, and that the, the, the second best alternative to not traveling is to traveling efficient, is to traveling efficient. In other words, what cities do for us is cities make it easy for, uh, for people to go to school, to go to work, to, 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 uh, to act on opportunities. Um, the the um, 
Jane Jacobs, who every, everyone knows about her book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities. But I would um, point you to her second book, which was called The Economy of Cities. And in the second book, which she wrote in 1969, she talks about the fact the way that cities are very central to the creation of, of, um, tech, of, of, of new products, of creation of jobs, creation of you know, the invention and creation of new things comes about through the fact that we have easy, easy access and, and we, can, we, can, we develop things. In, in the density of urban settings. And you know that from your own work in your own agencies that um, you work collaboratively, that teams have to work, that ideas, um, ideas come about. And, and what I always think is wonderful about New York City, as I, you see, um, being the New York chauvinist that I am, um, what I think is wonderful about New York is that every 20 years or so, it totally reinvents itself with a whole new group of people from somewhere else in the world. And um, you know, uh, my grandparents came here you know, over 100 years ago. They probably, well, they might recognize some of the building. But what I think is amazing is new people come. They look at the same space. They see different opportunities. They see different things. They bring new foods. They bring new, new culture. They bring new ideas. And a city that can, can, to the extent that the city can integrate that and take it in, it becomes a dynamic, vibrant place. It becomes a place that produces economic activity. So this issue of um, zoning, it seems to me, has to be thought of as the issue of how we set up the rules of the game so that um, change can take place and continuity can, can go on. Um, and. Um, the, the other point I would make is, but saying you need that, but the need for these things doesn't by itself create the needed political consensus, okay? We, 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 still, have, we still have a political problem. And that's the reason we want to understand the dynamics. So what I hope I've done with this first set of slides is explain to you why I think you should want to know about this. Now, let me talk about New York a little bit to, to, to contextualize it. He, these are two pictures. Um, at the time of the American Revolution, uh, there were a number of cities along the eastern seaboard that were of about the same size and, and um, you know, and were, they were, they were, they were, they were about six cities, but three that um, were clearly most prominent in American history were Boston, New York and Philadelphia, and they were about the same size, and 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 they um, and 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 they looked about the same. But um, something happened in the 1820s in New York. In fact, in 1826, um, uh, there was a governor named DeWitt Clinton, um, no relation to Bill Clinton or Hillary. Um, and DeWitt Clinton, who was the governor of New York, had this idea in 1819, and by 1826 it was done, of creating a canal that went across New York State from the Hudson River, which you know, up to, at Albany, over to the Great Lakes, over to Lake Erie. And what happened, of course, in, in, in those days, um, overland transportation of goods was very expensive. Water transportation was inexpensive. The country was opening up in this direction. Um, people were settling this way. So what happened is, all of a sudden, by the third decade of, what, of the 20th century, New York became the primate city 
of the United States. It wasn't the capital, that's, uh, that was in Washington, but it was the primate city because, it, because with the Erie Canal, it meant that ships came into New York, it became a transshipment point, it became a manufacturing point, things moved in, things moved out, finance had to take place, um, other industries developed, and so, um, and, and I'm just sticking to Manhattan right now. Um, uh, this is really <laughs> chauvinistic. Um, and uh, and I, I, I went and got the, um, the, the Manhattan population. In 1800, Manhattan had 60,000 odd people. I don't mean peculiar when I say odd. I mean, you know, well, yes. Um, and uh, by, uh, by the time you get to, to 1900, it was almost two million people are in, in Manhattan. In fact, the population of Manhattan peaks in, in 1910 at 2.3 million. It, even now, with all the growth and all the other things, it's, it's, uh, as of 2016, the estimate is, it was, um, is about 1.6. It's still not anywhere near that, that peak. And so what's happening is you've got this island You've got more people coming. The, the economy, that this growing economy, is running through this place. And so um, you begin to have a need to figure out how are they going to share the land? How is that going to happen? And so um, what actually happens is in 1807, there's, a, a, there's this realization that somehow this, you couldn't just put things wherever you wanted. You had to have an orderly layout of the streets. And so we have, it's called the, um, this was called the Commissioner's Map of 1807 in New York. They, they had to put a commission together. Um, it, it, it was a very high level, very political thing to figure out how to lay out the streets. And they laid out more or less the grid that's still Manhattan. Although you'll see there's no Central Park um, there was a parade ground, but there was no Central Park. The assumption that they were made, why was there no Central Park? The assumption they make is that, hey, it's an island. People have access to water on two sides. You don't need a park in the middle. By the 1850s, they decided, whoops, they were, they were wrong about that. You, you actually could use a park. So that's another story for another day. Um, what happened, so you, so, so the, the point is, in 1916, New York City adopts its first zoning um, resolution. And New York, there's some di dispute about it, but in general, it's considered the first comprehensive zoning resolution um, in, in um, it's certainly in the United States. By comprehensive zoning, it means that it's zoned both for buildings and for uses. So it's called comprehensive zoning. So there was, it was in 1916. In 1961, the zoning was revived, revised, not revived. <laughs> it's still where it is, revised. And, um, and we live under the 1961 resolution. And I'm going to probably, before this session is over, I'm going to probably tell you more about that than you're ever going to want to know. <laughs> okay? <laughs> but um, but uh, the, the, my only point is, that when you think, when you look back, you say Manhattan has really been planned for 220 years now. There's been there's been land use planning, and this land use planning, it, it's, in fact, it's not anti-market or pro. The, the fact is, um, you have to have both. You can't you can't have a city. You can't get the advantages of access and density 
if you don't have some rules. The question, of course, is who do the rules favor and who do the rules exclude? And, and we'll come back to that. that. That does not go away. So this is, this is the, the context. So now um, I'll just set the stage. And I'll, I'll probably go through this twice in, because of the way my slides are. But um, in, in 1915, at 120 Broadway, and you, we could, if we had the time, we could go to 120 Broadway, the equitable that was their name. I didn't make a life insurance company. Um, I don't know if they were really equitable, but they said they were equitable. Um, built a building on a, a piece of land that they, they built it, the, the whole block building. And what this building did was um, it freaked out everybody else because all of a sudden, um, while all the landowners wanted the freedom to do what they wanted, they realized that, I just want to just change the picture a second, that all of a sudden this building could begin to take away all the light and air from, from other buildings. So um, in, in 1916, um, it, it didn't happen that quickly. There had been talk about this for a while. There's things going on. The, um, uh, the first zoning code was, was put in place. And um, what, what, ha what it did actually that was very clever and that they still was still in use is they developed the concept called the sky exposure plane. And the notion was, we won't interfere with your right to build as high as you want, but you can't take the light from the street. So here's what you have to do. Every time you go up three feet, you have to set back one foot, three feet, one foot. So if you look at some of the older New York buildings, they look like wedding cakes. That's why they look like wedding cakes. The notion was that you have to permit the light to come down to the street along a sky exposure plane. This was one of those clever ideas, and it was, it was one of these compromises. It, one, it, it said, um, you can build whatever you want on your site, but, you, these are, but there, there are some externalities. Maria? Yeah. Question, I don't know if this comes later, but yeah. it's about the air rights. Yeah, we're, we're, oh, we're going to get to air rights, yes. Yeah, Yes, and I'm going, to, I'm going to spend a lot of time on air rights. But this, 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 was, um, this, this was just, in other words, what the zoning was about, essentially, was um, they didn't care how big you built the building. They, cared to, they wanted to form not to do certain things. That's all, that's all they were asking. Um, the other challenge that they had, which you remember from that demographic part, the city was overrun. This is Rivington and Orchard Street in 1898. This is a 2014 picture of it. The, this is the Manhattan's Lower East Side. This was the, the neighborhood that, um, if, um, if you read New York, was Jacob Reese was a journalist, wrote a book called How the Other Half Lives. That, that was the other half. Um, now we joke with how the other 99% lives, but in those days it was only half. Um, we've made progress. Um, and uh, the, uh, so, uh, the, but the point was you had to deal with Density was fine, but too much density becomes a problem. So this is this is um, uh, the problem, and this is, is, is what they're doing. And there was a third problem uh, that they were dealing with uh, when they zoned. I remember, I said they zoned for you know for the the you know they zoned for the height of the building. They also they zoned for use. There was a group called the Fifth Avenue. Merchants Association, and and what the Fifth Avenue Merchants did, they they ran the stores on um, a block that was called the Ladies Mile. And the Ladies Mile, the ladies who lunch, 
would come and shop on the ladies. But what was happening around the ladies' mile was all the lofts and the sweatshops where the clothing were made were locating. That wasn't the problem. The problem was lunchtime. Those people who worked in those would come out and walk on the street. And these were immigrants. These were East European immigrants with beards and, and you know, and sweaty. And they didn't want them walking on the street where the ladies, why, why was the ladies? So, all, so uh, all of a sudden, zoning for, for um, when you start the zoning for use, and you're really talking about not density in general, but who, who you want to be next to and who you don't. So the notion of beginning to uh, zone and regulate what uses can go next to what uses, there's, there's an environmental reason you wouldn't want to put um, a smelter next to um, a, a residential neighborhood or a school, but um, but this was, um, but so, but this was going. So w w the the point here is, when you look at zoning, you're looking at something that's both technical, and something that's social and political, and something that's always of the moment. So um, so these were the things that were going on. But the other thing that happened, that I you have to be sure, and you're going to be, was in 1904, the first subway opened in. New, in Manhattan. And by the way, the first subway in the United States is actually 1897. It's in Boston. But the first subway in New York opens in 1904. And they call the first subway, they give it the very amazing name called the One Line. You guys know the One Line, of course. This is, <laughs> we all know and love the One Line. But the One Line actually ran from City Hall up to Grand Central. And then it went across. And that's now the shuttle, by the way. Because um, what they did they, later, they then extended the one line this way, and they extended the east side lines that way. But when they opened, this is what they did uh, in, in, um, after 1904. And you read the New York Times, what the subway means to New York City, you can be in Harlem in 15 minutes. Um, so um, part of the way the, 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 this problem, there was, there was the zoning, but part of the answer was transportation was access through transportation. So um, this was, so this becomes the, the underpinning of, of, uh, of what you see. And, and we, of course, are going to take that, to, I'll, we'll talk about that. We're going to go down to 2030. I have a map even to show. <laughs> I, I know you guys know your way around, but I'm still going to show you a map. Um, so um, the compromise of the 1916 zoning resolution uh, was the concerns were density, all those people living too high density, light and air, and desirable versus undesirable uses. And I put in parentheses, desirable versus undesirable people. We may say uses, but very often we mean people. Um, and uh, the stakeholders, because it was new, I'm not going to focus on the other, the other four boroughs, but, the, um, but in Brooklyn and Queens, and people, you had homeowners in single-family homes who were concerned about keeping their neighborhoods the way they were. So what was done was, in the zoning, they said, okay, we'll give you protections for that, but what you have to give us in Manhattan is essentially the ability to, um, to build our tall buildings. And, and, and so, so you had the homeowners, you had the real estate developers, you had the merchants who um, wanted certain people and other people, and then you had what I call the ideological advocates, you could call them the policy. If you don't want ideological, say policy people, um, be people like us 
who um, uh, I think we, you know who want um, essentially w w are advocating for certain things we'd like to see happen in in the world, and um, and they're often called they called them um, derisively the goo goos, goo goo meaning good government types. Um, so the goo goos um, and. Uh, and in our era, I would say that the, the equivalent people, the ones who advocate now for urban social justice environment and so on, and hopefully these are many of us. Um, <laughs> that's my only political plug. Um, that, so, uh, but, but essentially, it was, you had, these, were the, these were the stakeholders setting up the rules of the game, the, the institution that's called zoning. And those were the issues that um, they were concerned about at, at that time. The 19, now that's just, so that's just background. 1961, this is the act, and this is going to get us to air rights. Um, in 1961, uh, well, first of all, what was happening, the 1916 act was proving to be much harder to administer in practice than in theory. Uh, in theory, the theory was we set these rules, everybody plays by these rules, and we all live happily ever after. Um, in practice, things are always changing. And so between 1916 and 1940 alone, there were over 1,300 amendments to that zoning resolution. But to get an amendment passed in those days, the, the amendments were, had to be approved by what was called the Board of Estimate. That was the legislative body. It was, it's not an elegant term. But the Board of Estimate was the mayor, the city controller, um, uh, and uh, the, the president of, of, of and, and the five borough presidents of the five boroughs. And, and what happened was they were very powerful because New York City, as five boroughs or five counties, didn't come into being until 1898. So in that process, um, the, the, the central government only over time evolved to, with a stronger mayor. In the early years, those borough presidents were very powerful players, and the rules on amendments were if the borough president wanted it from that borough, the others would vote for it. So it was. Um, so that was, it was a. That, that's the way that game was played. Um, at the time that they were putting the zoning resolution into effect, they also they also had assumed that they were going to set up a planning commission because the notion was, and we still teach it this way, is that um, you have to plan before you zone. Zoning has to be in conformance with a plan. Now, um, New York City didn't have a plan. They, they, for a lot of political reasons, which we won't get into now, they never were able to get the planning commission approved. It's not until 1938 that they get a planning commission. But they have zoning uh, go, going, going along. Um, and then uh, at, the, at the end of then World War II comes, at the end of World War II, um, the people are all dissatisfied with the zoning resolution. There is now a planning commission. The planning commission, this is a footnote, was, when it was originally envisioned, it was going to have three powers. Um, one was the, the zoning, zoning powers. Um, the, the second um, provision that it also was going to have besides zoning powers was it was going to um, control the capital budget. And if you really want to plan, and, and I think all of you who work in finance know, if you want to plan, it's the capital budget that matters. And the zoning and the planning commission had, had zoning, the capital budget, and, and the mandated to do a master plan, three things. Um, by the time, uh, there was a famous man in New York named Robert Moses, um, who, uh, if you read the book called The Power Broker, 
he ran everything. He wasn't about to, A, let anyone else do this, and, and B, no mayor in their right mind is going to turn over the capital budget to any appointed group. You know, that, so, this whole, so in the end, well, when they develop a planning commission, the only thing that the planning commission in New York does is it really maintains the zoning resolution. And nowadays, it deals with uh, environmental reviews. But essentially, um, so, this is, so the point is, this is an institution, and this is how this institution works. What then happens is, after the war, there's, uh, there's a lot of problems with the zoning. One problem is, um, at the 1960, nobody thought about automobiles. After World War II, automobiles have to be, you have to zone for and make provision for automobiles in the cities. They become such a primary form of transportation. The other is modernist architecture um, is, is uh, you know, uh, Corbusier uh, uh, is, is, um, is the, he, he's the hero, but he's also the villain, if you read some planning books, of um, the tower in the park. And, 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 and it's not a crazy notion if you think about the density of the city. You think about those Lower East Side pictures, people living without light and air. The notion that we could have density and, and light and air was what the tower in the park was about. So it wasn't by itself a, a crazy thing. But, but the zoning, as it had been set up, didn't allow it because what the zoning said was to build a building, you have to build a base 100 to 150 feet up, a, a, a and then on the base, you could have a tower at about 25% of the height. That's how the Empire State Building gets built under the 1916 resolution. You'll, if you look at the block, you'll see it takes up a huge amount of space to get enough space to have a 25% tower that was economically viable for them. So, um, but the modernist uh, idea of architecture was, were these um, setback buildings. So, um, anyway, that would need to be done. But what's going to be important for us was the new regulation was innovative in several ways. What, one of the things it did was it introduced something called incentive zoning. It, 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 I'm putting the horse before the cart here a little bit. Well, I guess you're supposed to put the horse before the cart. Um, I'm putting the cart before the horse. <laughs> I knew I was doing something. Putting the cart before the horse. What, what, what I was saying, essentially, um, the, the, uh, the, the city said, we'll let you build, we'll let you have more bulk. That's what you call the you know, building size. You can have more bulk if you do certain things. If you create a public open space, you can have extra extra floor. If you, um, if you do something you know, for affordable housing, they, so all of a sudden, the notion of using the zoning resolution to incentivize other social goods um, were able to came with that. And the second notion was and that the city had to have special districts. And we're going, the Hudson Yards is a special district that we're going to go look at today. But very important was what, the, what it did was, it essentially said, it zoned, it took every block, and it took a block of land, and it said, any, any, um, any lot on this block of land uh, can have buildings of, of X square feet. Um, the, you know, uh, you know if, if your lot was 1,000 feet square, and, and, um, and, and, the, and the, uh, the zoning was for one, you could, you could build you could build a 1,000-foot, one-story building. But if you felt like it, you could use only half the lot and make the building two stories. Or you could go 
You could make it in quarters and you can take it up to four stories. But however you wanted to do it, you could do it. But that's all you could do on your lot. So, but what they did was it created a property right. Because now when you bought a piece of land, you also had a certain amount of, of uh, floor area. And we, we, we don't call it floor area. We tend to say FAR, floor area ratio. It's just um, a way it gets talked about. Um, so uh, as I said, so we have zoning without planning. And, and, and so you're going to be looking at a city that's zoned. And, and I'll show you, how do you get around the planning problem? I'll show you how they do that. So the first planning commission doesn't arrive till 38. Uh, an actual master plan never materializes, although in 1969, they actually, uh, when Mayor Lindsay was the mayor, they tried. Um, the FAR transformed the bulk mandates from a regulation to a property right, is what I'm saying. Um, and what begins to happen is the public-private distinction begins to break down, because um, if you can manipulate the FAR to accomplish public goals, um, some of the, you begin to see how these things uh, uh, begin to change. Uh, who wins and who loses has to be more carefully dissected, is what I would say. Now, the other point I want to make, this is one of those great German words, zeitgeist, uh, meaning it, what it really means is the, um, the tenor of the times. And so I say, don't lose sight of the macro issues. The, the, when those resolutions were passed, when zoning was introduced, I, I, I define the era as the era of social democracy. This was, the, the no, this was Keynesian economics, social democracy. The notion was government had a very activist role to play. Um, the problem is that the zoning resolution, that even though it, it has its roots in those eras, we, we now, we live in this era of um, neoliberalism is one, one term, you know, the, the notion that markets, uh, markets um, rule uh, it, and that you want to have a, a liberal, markets can solve problems. Um, the other is uh, the government should, shouldn't be spending a lot. The austerity um, notion is the other, the other piece to that. So you, you, you've got, um, and, and, but you still have this zoning tool and you have this FAR and, um, and the question becomes, how, how does it get, how, how, how does that, how did that tool built in this one zeitgeist, in this one era, how did this tool begin to act, in, begin to be used in, in, in the second era? So um, we need to pay very close attention to, to um, facts. And, you know, and the, the uh, uh, and th th that's the, um, the point. So as I said, the institutional history matters. Um, and and uh, I just wanted to quote from Douglas North to make sure conceptually what must be clearly differentiated are the rules from the players. The purpose of the rules is to find the way the game is played, but the objective of the team within the set of rules is to win the game. Modeling the strategies and skills of the team as it develops is a separate process from modeling the creation and evolution and consequences of the rules. And a lot of uh, what, and this is, this is what's called new institutional economics. He, he got a Nobel in economics. But the one that's interesting to us is um, the second part, develop, uh, modeling the creation, evolution, and consequences of the rules. That's what um, we're going to focus on. Um, this ex expression here, a well-considered plan, that actually has meaning um, because in, in, uh, under New York state law, um, you can only zone 
in conformance with a plan. But for New York City, they have an exception called New York City can zone as long as it zones in accordance with a well-considered plan. And then when you go look further in the statutes, which I did, you find out that there's no definition of a well-considered plan. So what it essentially means is, in New York City, is, uh, as long as we thought about it before we did it, we, we considered it. So that was, um, so that's what um, we were up against. So, um, so what begins to happen in, in New York uh, with zoning is it, it's a dilemma of being, um, uh, it's a demo of working with markets. Essentially, the core intention of the zoning is, is to affect the behavior in the real estate market. What the city does when it zones, and if you, you look at any of the zoning plans, you look at what they're doing, it's always an attempt to anticipate uh, which way markets are moving and either to encourage or discourage certain things, but it's to work with the market. Um, and, and, and so the first concern of the planners, if you go to the city planning department, is really with the, with the real estate industry, with the market participant. Now, I, I also want to be clear, it, it, people are, it's not that they're not concerned about social equity, it's not that they're not concerned about the environment, it's just the reality that with a, when they do a well-considered plan, what they have to, the thing they have to influence, what, what's foreground is how will the market participants react? And in fact, the way it works in practice is usually the real estate industry comes into city planning and saying, hey, we have an idea. And, and then they respond to the idea. But the, the, the issue is uh, that, um, that, that they, they, would they would defend what they would do. They would say that their well-considered plans are well-considered plans because there is a lot of analysis. There are hearings. Things happen. But... Um, but the argument I'm making is that the dynamic is, in the way this works, is, is, is the way it works in relation to the market and then the way in which other interests um, behave with it. That's why this is urban policy and that's why I think this becomes useful. Thank you for joining us on this Columbia University Comunitas Public Management Podcast. Please join us for other podcasts here on this website.